T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Dr. Angelo Valandez is talking with us on our program. He's a physician and researcher at Harvard Medical School. He is also co-founder of Advanced Care Planning Decisions, which is a nonprofit organization we're going to find out about in the course of our discussion. And he's also authored The Conversation, a revolutionary plan for end-of-life care. We're going to talk with him about the book and his work in our discussion. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you for having me. And good morning to you. I have a lot of thoughts surrounding um, this book and your work, but in introducing you, I mentioned Advanced Care Planning Decisions. You're a co-founder of the nonprofit organization. How do you describe what it does? The nonprofit's mission is to better inform people about their medical options, especially at the end of life. You know, today we live and die in a healthcare system that doesn't honor and respect patients' wishes. When we ask people where they want to die, 86% of Americans say they want to die outside of the hospital and at their home. But what are the facts? Most people are still dying in our hospitals and in nursing homes, often tethered to machines and in pain. So what we're trying to do is to transform healthcare so that we could actually honor people's wishes to die outside of the hospital. You know, some of the people listening to this discussion may be surprised because in introducing you, I said, you're a physician, and they're hearing, well, wait a minute. Here's what he's saying about our system. Doesn't this kind of run contrary to the system that he's working in? (laughs) This is true, and uh, some people might be unhappy about that. But look, you know, although we talk about having a patient-centered healthcare system, uh, the book's about the fact that it's not patient-centered. It's really healthcare system-centered. We do things in healthcare that we know most patients, when they're more informed, simply do not want. And that's why I tell people, just look at what the facts are. New York State is the worst state when it comes to patients dying in hospitals. And we know that most people don't want to die in the hospital. Most people, when we ask them, if you have a serious terminal illness, where do you want to die? Most people say at home, surrounded by their loved ones, and yet that's not the case. And the book is really a call to action for people to know what's going on in our healthcare system, because I think if people truly understood, they would really be outraged. And so after reading the book, I hope people are outraged so that they can start taking back healthcare. When you say start taking back health care, taking it back how? Well, as a physician, um, I take care of people who are sick in the hospital all the time. And what I notice is that none of my colleagues, very few colleagues, very few doctors, are having the conversation, having an open and honest discussion about people's wishes. And so the main reason why we see this misalignment between the type of medical care people are getting in the hospital and the type of medical care they want is because clinicians aren't sitting down, slowing down, and actually talking with patients. I think if most of us did that, 
if most patients and families actually talked about this, we wouldn't have the mess that we have in healthcare today. Well, what's really behind that, though? I mean, these are your colleagues. Um, why is it that they well, don't have the conversation? There are lots of reasons. First, my colleagues and I got into medicine because we want to help people. But the problem is we've designed a system, a healthcare system, that makes it very difficult to not do everything. You know, when a patient comes into the hospital, the assumption is do everything unless a patient has stated in advance, whether written or through family members, stated that they don't want everything. And so most of us, most of the doctors are not having this conversation, and therefore we all assume that when the patient comes into the hospital, indeed they do want everything. You know, it's interesting you say that because I also think about something. One of my colleagues here at WFAN actually mentioned this in discussion on Saturday afternoon. When I told him about the fact we were going to have our discussion, and he said this is an area of discussion that certainly now is getting the attention of more and more baby boomers. How can that motivate the discussion, the conversation, broadening? Yeah, my hope is really with the baby boomers, because right now a lot of baby boomers are dealing with this issue with their parents, an elderly mother with advanced Alzheimer's disease or an elderly father with advanced cancer. And so they're seeing how poorly the healthcare system um, treats patients with advanced illness and my hope is that they're learning how to navigate the healthcare system so that by the time they are in that position, they'll know what to do. And it's really simple. It's just asking a few simple questions like, what's important to you? What's a good day? What are the sort of medical things you would or would not want if you couldn't do those activities? And where do you want to spend the end of your life? You know, even though I'm calling it um, your end of your life or a good death, it's not about a good death. It's about good life because we're all going to die someday. So every good life deserves a good ending. So we just want to honor and respect people's wishes. That's what this is really about. And I think I have a lot of faith in baby boomers and in patients who are going to be empowered to know how to answer these questions to really reform, to reform and transform health care as we know it today. And in a way, aren't the baby boomers also at times being faced with looking at the reality that they too are going to die? Absolutely. It's, it's a fact of life. So why don't we try to take back health care? Why don't patients truly become the center of health care and let patients be in the driver's seat, not the health care system? Hmm. Well, now, I didn't ask you a couple of questions at the beginning of uh, this discussion. Some of the people listening might have expected from me. Uh, you mentioned something about talking about you and your colleagues, why you got into uh, medicine. But let's ask this question in a little bit more detail. What was it that motivated you to become a doctor? What motivated for me to become a doctor, there are a lot of reasons. Um, one is that during college, I had an experience taking care of a professor and his wife, and she was very sick. And I realized that so much in her decisions had to do with understanding um, what was important to her about what sort of medical things she did and did not want. 
And even though I didn't plan on becoming a doctor, it was that experience of seeing someone going through the dying process that really made me think about, well, gosh, this seems something that's so important to people, and I wanted to help people through that process. And that's honestly how I got into um, interested in medical school and then eventually went on uh, to, to, uh, to med school. And when you say that the focus, you know, when you talk about the title of the book, you're talking about the content of the book, you know, some people may hear end of life and think, oh, well, the focus here is death. And we get into this whole thing with our society, which is very much of a death-denying society. Does that potentially inhibit people from even having a real discussion or conversation? You know, the United States is one of the unique countries that doesn't talk about this. And I think it has to do with our cultural predilection to always look for the next new thing, to the next uh, immortality um, cure or um, this denial of death. And unfortunately, um, I see it within my colleagues as well. Uh, But I think that's part of the reason why a lot of us are uncomfortable having this discussion. But I think if people read some of the stories in the book, because what I do is I take seven of my patients that I personally took care of and talk about how their end-of-life care hinged on whether or not they had a conversation with their doctor. I think if people understood what's going to happen to you if you don't have this discussion, I think that might urge them into starting this discussion on their own. Um, And that's the real goal of the book, is to have people start this process, not in the hospital, but at home with their loved ones, and years before they become critically ill. Some of the people listening to us will say, all right, this sounds like a great idea, but in the real world, how do I start this discussion with a loved one? Yeah, so the book is not only a memoir, it's also also a how-to. So I actually give you a step-by-step approach. What are the questions you should be asking? What do you fill out? What are the forms you need to fill out? And New York State has its own unique forms that people need to fill out. But then I offer suggestions. You know, one thing I tell people is don't just have this conversation with your son or daughter and your physician. Go ahead and use your iPhone and iPad or your tablet and record a short video saying what's important to you, saying what your wishes are. And then go ahead and email that short video to your loved ones, to your friends, to your doctor, and this way, when you are sick, they could actually refer back to that video. And eventually, someday, although it's not the case today, that video may be part of your electronic medical record. Um, we don't have that today, but eventually that'll be the case where people's videos will be uploaded. And this way, if it's 3 in the morning and I'm the ER doc and you come into my hospital, even though you might be too sick to talk to me, perhaps I could view a video instead of a form that tells me I want this or not this. A video would be so much more informational to me, informative to me, uh, to understand who you are and what was important to you. When you're in that situation, you are that ER doc. You have that person come in. It's 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. What are the sort of things that are going through your head when you're trying to figure out basically the answers to the kind of questions you're raising? Right. Well, unfortunately, that's the worst time to have this conversation. It's the worst time to ask someone who feels horrible and is coming into my emergency room, who's probably vomiting, uh, who's not able to talk with me. It's the worst time to start that conversation or to start it with their family members. 
So as an ER doctor, I think most of my colleagues would say, well, I have to do everything possible now because no one had this conversation before this patient came to my emergency room. You know, especially for patients with the advanced stages of cancer or the advanced stages of other illnesses like congestive heart failure, a lot of patients don't want to be in the hospital or in an emergency room or a lot of frail elderly patients who are living in our nursing homes. They don't want to go back and forth to the hospital through the emergency room. So unfortunately, what ends up happening is that people do end up in the emergency room and they end up in our hospitals, um, despite the fact that if someone had a conversation with them, informed them about their medical options, they would have preferred not to be there. It's an unfortunate reality that happens far too often across our country. And I must say, it, it happens a lot more frequently in the Empire State. Let us take a uh, pause in our discussion with you, uh, Dr. Yolandis. We'll come back. A lot more to get into in discussion. First, look around the sporting world after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on The Fan. We're talking on our program on The Fan, Sports Radio 66, Sports Radio 1019, with Dr. Angelo Volandes, who is uh, talking with us about the book, The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. And he has joined us by phone on our program. He's a physician and a researcher at Harvard Medical School, also co-founder of, of Advanced Care Planning Decisions, which is a nonprofit organization. And he is talking with us uh, on our program. In doing this book and, you know, relating those stories that you mentioned, you know, the kind of a, a memoir, for you personally, what was that like? It was really um, trying because these are my patients. Mm-hmm. Part of what went wrong was my fault. And so it's part confession for myself of how when I was learning to be a doctor, I perpetrated the same problems that I'm describing in the book and that it took me close to a decade to really to, to recognize that I was part of the problem, but I could also be part of the solution. And as I mentioned uh, when we started, doctors get into medicine to do the right thing, but we're sometimes led into a system that doesn't allow us to do the right thing. And so hopefully, I think in the last six months, we've seen so much about end-of-life care, about making uh, people aware of what they can do, but also talking about how technology can help us. For example, as part of the book, we have a short video that's a step-by-step guide for people to empower themselves. And we have it on YouTube. It's at theconversationbook.org, so that's theconversationbook.org where you can empower yourself. It's a short five-minute video that tells you step-by-step what are the questions you need to ask, what are the forms you need to fill out, what are your options for medical care. And I hope that um, when people view the video, buy the book, read the stories, that they will try, um, because it's not just doctors that are going to fix the system, it's patients and families. We all need to overhaul the system because it's truly broken at every level. And what is the actual power of the average citizen in that process of fixing the system? Well, today it's close to zero because right now the healthcare system has all the power because the healthcare system has all the knowledge. If you go into the hospital and a provider, a clinician's not going to have a discussion with you and tell you about your medical options, then your ability to navigate that is close to zero. 
But why can't we empower patients, empower families with the knowledge that they need to know their medical options? And that's why I think the development of videos and YouTube is tremendous because people learn through visual images. And in short, easy-to-understand videos, people can understand what their options are. They can know what their options are so that when they go into the hospital, they're not waiting for the doctor to bring this up. They're telling the doctor what's important to them. And I think it flips that power dynamic that we have today because today the patient sort of waits there for the doctor to raise this issue. Well, what if we primed and activated patients with videos? Then they're the ones who are going to bring it up. And we actually have studies. We not only create these short videos in our nonprofit, but we actually study them. And what we find is that when patients actually have the information that they need through watching a video, they're the ones that start the conversation with the doctor. That's truly revolutionary, and that's where the subtitle comes back. Because what I'm trying to do is put all the power back to the patient so that when they know their options, I think most patients will make sure that they get the type of medical care that they want, but on their terms. Let's take a step back in the career of a doctor, back to medical school. End-of-life care, end-of-life decisions. How's that really covered? <laughs> what a wonderful question. And I think when you mentioned what can we do to change it, um, you know, my faith is in patients and families, but I do think it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. And going back to medical school is where we can start as a, as a um, healthcare system. Look, when we recruit, when we accept applicants to medical school, what do we look at? We look at whether or not they took not only organic chemistry, but the hardest class in organic chemistry, not only physics, but the hardest class in physics. That's what's valued, the sciences. And sure, the sciences are important, but I'll be honest, I studied organic chemistry, physics, biochemistry, but I don't use that on a daily basis when I'm seeing patients. And yet, when I got into medical school, not a single person ever asked me, can you actually talk to a patient? <laughs> and yet, I talk to patients as a doctor every day. So I think we need to revamp our medical school system where we're not valuing just the sciences. Yes, let's value the sciences, but also let's value the ability to communicate. Let's value students who have taken English literature, who have taken philosophy, who have understood some of the questions that patients as human beings need to face when it comes to the end of life. But we shouldn't just stop at medical school. Let's talk about residency training. Residency training is some of the most brutal training during a doctor's career, and it's because the number of patients you see, but also the number of hours that you're working. Um, we do have a, a, a law now where residents cannot work more than 80 hours per week. So we're trying to cram into them how to treat uh, acid-based disturbances, how to treat patients on breathing machines, how to understand uh, these, uh, you know, HIV and Ebola. Um, so we need to also value how to train residents to talk to patients, how to train residents to have the conversation. Um, you know, by the time I finished residency, which was 10 years ago, I had to show competency in how to insert uh, a central line, how to do uh, lumbar punctures, and how to do codes. And yet not a single clinician ever asked me, can you actually have an end-of-life conversation with a patient and their loved ones? Um, I think we're changing slowly, but it's not enough. We need to really focus on how uh, medical students, 
residents and young senior doctors, how they start having these conversations. We need to start focusing on that and treat it just as importantly as we do um, the other things that we do in medicine. You in the book, in the book again, is entitled The Conversation. You talk about, this is early on in the book, this term code blue. And there's a great story uh, that is told uh, in the book. Let me ask you, though, because I've always been curious about this. As a doctor, you hear that term code blue. What goes through your head? A lot of adrenaline. <laughs> I mean, even though you just mentioned it now, it's a flashback uh, to when I'm in the hospital. It's that moment where someone's heart has stopped and you are racing so that you can get that heart to beat again. Not a second more goes by than has to um, so that you can restart that heart and make sure that patient has blood flowing to their brain. Uh, it's one of the dramatic moments in every physician's career. And we've done remarkable things in modern medicine in a short period of time. We are able to save hundreds of thousands of people doing these amazing procedures, probably millions of people over the course of the last few decades. But you know, the problem is with medicine is our growing toolkit of fixes. We need to know when to use and not to use those fixes. And so with a code blue, the dramatic art act is when you perform CPR. And CPR has saved millions of people. And it's a wonderful thing, but it's a wonderful thing in people who have a good chance of surviving. And the people that I focus on, the patients that I focus on in my book are the patients who had a very, very, very small, if any, chance of surviving CPR, and those are the patients with advanced illness who we know from many, many studies don't do well um, from CPR, don't survive CPR, or if they do, they have many, many complications and never go back to their previous uh, functional status. So um, it's one of the high points, but it's also one of the low points of modern medicine. And when we talk about modern medicine and end-of-life decisions, discussions, uh, wishes, a term that often comes up is this idea of what's referred to as a living will. What do you think of those? Yeah, so let's, um, the general term is an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. An advanced directive, which uh, New York State had, was at the forefront of uh, putting out in the healthcare system comes in two flavors. One's a living will and the other is a healthcare proxy or a healthcare surrogate. With a living will, it's essentially a form that a patient fills out and it describes a variety of interventions and scenarios. So it's very much a checkbox of, if I have this illness, I want this or I don't want this. Or if this happens to me, I would want CPR or I don't want CPR. And also in the state of New York, there's some unusual uh, checkboxes when it comes to things like feeding tubes and hydration. So it's all these checkboxes. And I have to be honest, as a physician, I'm never sure what to do with these forms because I didn't fill it out with you. So I'm assuming that a knowledgeable person actually walked you through this often complicated form, that you had a pretty good idea 
of what we mean by feeding tube or hydration or CPR or breathing machine. And the truth is most patients have no idea what any of that means. And so when I'm stuck with this form and I have a sick patient who can't speak to me, I have a problem because all of a sudden I'm assuming that this form indeed was filled out correctly, that the patient actually understood all their options and what the success rate, the risks and benefits of all these procedures were. And the fact is most patients don't. So although we say, you know, do your best to fill out a living will, I like to say if you're going to fill it out, at least make sure you understand what all the terms mean. Now, the other form, the other type of advanced directive, I think, is the much better one to fill out. I think everybody should fill out both, by the way. But I think the other one is the one that I focus on, and that's picking your healthcare surrogate or proxy. And that's someone that you designate to make decisions on your behalf when you can't make decisions. And what I tell people is not only designate someone, but actually have the conversation with that person. Tell them, answer those questions. And these are all the questions that I go through in the book. What's important to you? What's a good day? What are your hopes and fears when it comes to medical care? Where do you want to spend the end of your life? You know, these are the questions that you should be having a conversation with your proxy so that when the, when the time comes that they're trying to make decisions for you, they're not guessing. Because most people who guess either guess incorrectly or guess no better than chance. Dr. Angelo Volanda is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. His book is entitled The Conversation, A Revolutionary Plan for End-of-Life Care. A lot more to get to here on The Fan. This is Bob Salter. We are joined by John Kuhn. John is joining us to talk with us about uh, some of the experience in uh, putting together a book with uh, one of the most interesting titles I think I've ever experienced. Now listen to this, folks. The title is Fear and Learning in America, Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education, in parentheses, Teaching for Social Justice Series. John, first of all, uh, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me on. It's nice to have you uh, join us. Uh, Why that title, first of all? Well, uh, modern education reform has uh, been built atop a structure that has a lot to do with fear, threats, uh, scary ideas of what's going on in our schools. And I wanted to highlight the, the use of fear in driving a narrative about schools and about teachers. And as you paint that picture in that narrative, um, how has this been received? Uh, response to the book has been really phenomenal. Uh, had uh, feedback from teachers, administrators, and parents all over the nation. Um, we are dealing with a, an environment right now in, in our education system where teachers are sometimes uh, deemed the bad guy uh, in all this when, when really uh, teachers and parents are uh, natural allies in promoting what's good for kids. And when you talk about that partnership between teachers and parents, in a way, has that changed over the years, especially from the time that, let's say, you and I were in school? Yes, I think absolutely it has, uh, and there's, there's actually polling data that, that proves it. There's a poll that's given out annually, and the question is asked, if you were to rate your child's school on a grading scale, what grade would you give it? And um, over the years, that, that has actually gotten better, so that now over 80% of parents polled will give their own child's school an A or a B. But the, the same poll, interestingly, asks this question. It says, well, rate the nation's schools as a whole. 
And the response to that question is flip-flopped exactly. It's 20% of respondents will give the nation's school uh, an A or a B. So what we see is when parents have direct contact with teachers, with the programs that exist in their schools, they're very positive about what they see and what they experience. But when they talk about that kind of ethereal, out-there school system, uh, they tend to be very negative. And I believe that uh, is, can be attributed to a marketing campaign to scare people about schools. Is that all it can be attributed to? I mean, it that sounds like there's got to be other factors also uh, well, building into yes, this. Well, there, yes, there is, there is data that is scary. Uh, some of it is more accurate than others. Um, but we, we are constantly seeing data about international test scores and how the United States stacks up against other countries on you know, these international tests. A lot of times that type of data, though, is presented without context. For example, when we hear that the United States is in the middle of the pack on the PISA scores and that Singapore and Finland are way at the top, what we're not told is that that has always been the case. Uh, dating back to the 1960s when the first international tests were given, the United States scored 11th out of 12 industrial, industrialized nations on a math test. So the fact is American students have never dominated uh, international testing, but that particular data point is presented free of context to drive this, this narrative of failing American schools. Well, you know, if that's, if that's the case, and, you know, a lot of us have never, um, a lot of people probably never heard the information that you just imparted to us. Why is it that we don't hear that or have not heard that? Well, that's a good question, and that's kind of one of the questions I raise in my book. We're, we're always being scared about our schools, um, and I think there are a variety of factors. Number one, um, the, the tendency is if it bleeds, it leads. And so, you know, uh, bad news is news, and, and good news a lot of times is not news. Um, but then on top of that, too, when it comes to educational policy, there are competing interests always at play, and so there are always and have always been uh, parties involved in conversations about education that have, you know, ideological purposes that they pursue. And so for some, it uh, is a, a conversation they want to have when you start talking about American schools are failing. Uh, there are folks who uh, have preferences for different uh, means of educating American children, whether that be uh, private school vouchers or, or other me methodologies like that. And so a lot of times the, the story of failing American schools is ideologically preferred to some folks. And so uh, that helps those type of stories have legs. Um, and, and then on top of that, you just have the, you know, the, the kind of the newsworthiness of bad news. You know, you used the, that phrase competing interests a couple of moments ago. And as you said that, I'm thinking, okay, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, when you, when you start talking about education politics, uh, there are a lot of different people who have different views about how education should go down, how it should happen in the United States. Uh, there are folks who believe that we should have a, a public education system funded by taxation that should provide an equitable quality education to all children in the United States. And that's kind of the, the traditional idea of public education. But in today's environment, there are competing ideas. One of those ideas is a, kind of a choice and competition model where we no longer have this, this public entity. And, and this, of course, is a, a goal of, of 
you know, folks who, who share this ideology, but to replace the public education system with a, a system that is dominated by uh, competing schools that, that operate independently of one another and that market themselves to parents and students and say, you know, send your child to my school, and then the funding would follow the child to those schools. So in the education reform conversation that happens nationwide, you know, these are the two main competing interests that you have. Um, so on one side of that debate, obviously, it is beneficial uh, to promote the idea that the American public education system as is, is a failure. Now, there's no question that there are struggles in the American public education system, um, but, but, but context will tell you that there are also great successes in the American public education system. And the other issue that comes into play that we have to be mindful of is that in public education, uh, questions of equity are important. Sometimes when we talk about quality education, we want to simplify it down to, oh, the teachers aren't doing their job, American schools are failing. Well, in reality, there's a lot more to the quality of education than just that teacher and just the actions taking place inside the school. It's an interesting discussion that we are having on um, our program with uh, John Kuhn. John is talking with us about his book entitled Fear and Learning in America, Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education, Teaching for Social Justice Series, in parentheses in the title of that book. And uh, he is talking with us uh, by phone on our program. When we talk about this idea of, you know, these competing interests, as you said that and you gave that explanation, I'm thinking of something, thinking, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't, in an ideal situation, shouldn't the focus, shouldn't the attention, shouldn't the ultimate payoff be the success of the students? Absolutely. Yes, it should. But yet, these competing interests get caught up in exactly what it is they're seeking, and they don't look toward that total payoff. Well, I think on both sides of the argument, um, e either side would tell you that they are looking out for students. Um, so that the folks who prefer choice and competition, they'll tell you that they believe that the free market is the best way to guarantee quality. They'll tell you that uh, if, if, if schools have to compete for students, uh, then they will up their game to try and, and get students. You know, I, I don't fully believe the, the simplicity of that message because I, I look at fast food restaurants, for example, and uh, they're competing for customers, but they don't all put out the healthiest product. You know, sometimes it's marketing that drives the, the customers to the restaurant or just the taste, not necessarily the quality of the food. Uh, so I worry about the free market being our guarantor of educational quality uh, because of that. On the other side, those who advocate for an, an equitably funded, quality public education system that guarantees students in any community in the United States access to a quality school, those people would tell you that we advocate for those things because that's what's best for students. Every student, wherever they live in the United States, should have access to a quality education. It's too, it's, the disagreement is over the, the method of getting to that point of guaranteeing quality for all students. You know, we very often hear this talk about the importance of the funding, you know, that students have this uh, equitable situation when it comes to, to access to uh, education and quality education. But yet education, it seems, 
very often is one of the first areas cut when any sort of, or even being proposed for cuts when there's any sort of a budget dispute or fiscal crisis going on, whether it's on a state level, um, a municipal level, uh, or a county level, level, or even state or federal level. Is this something where we have to shift our priorities? Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. That is one of the first things that, that, that gets cut when there is, is a financial crisis or a, or a situation. And part of the reason for that is is because it's, it's one of the biggest line items, one of the biggest budget areas that, uh, that, that we see when we look at the books. So, you know, that's where you're going to cut. Um, one of the reasons that I wrote my book, one of the reasons I've become more outspoken uh, is, is because of what I've seen. Um, the... You know, when we talk about education and everyone says we need to guarantee that the outcomes that students are, are learning what they're supposed to be learning, nobody really disagrees with that, that notion of, of measuring outcomes and guaranteeing that students are learning what they're supposed to learn. But if you just say that and you leave out all the details, you're missing a big truth. And, and the big truth is this. When we fund education, we don't always do it uh, evenly and equitably. So that you know, there's X amount of dollars that, that goes to fund public education, and everyone assumes, and, and before I went into school administration, even when I was a teacher, I also assumed that those dollars were, were spread out pretty evenly. So that no matter where you went to school in the state of New York, in the state of Texas, uh, your school was funded basically the same amount of dollar per student. That's not the case. We have a real... Uh, dollar amount inequities in what we invest in students depending on where they live, depending on what the property values are in that area, because a lot of our school funding is driven by property taxes. Um, the consequence of that is a, a real bottom-line unfairness. You're going to fund certain schools 85% of what you fund other schools, but then at the end of the day, at the end of the school year, you're going to give both of those schools a set of tests and say, test your kids and the results that they get on the standardized test, we're going to use those results to gauge whether you're a quality school or a bad school. But we're not ever going to admit that one of these schools had a dollar disadvantage at the outset. And that's, that really troubles me as a school administrator. And when you speak out like you are, um, what's the impact of this for you in your line of work as an administrator? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate to have the support of my community and my board. Uh, they are supportive of public education as an American institution. They, they believe, you know, my board members have expressed to me that they, they believe, as I do, that public education uh, is one of the most democratizing things we've ever come up with in the United States and that it must, you know, it, it needs to be defended, it needs to be protected. Some of the attacks on public education, some of the attacks on schools and teachers uh, have some legitimacy and there are things that we must do better. Um, but some of the attacks are, are, are false, and some of the attacks are very hyperbolic and very exaggerated. And so it's important that there are people uh, who are willing to step up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, this is not exactly accurate. Uh, you know, there's a mix of folks in the education conversation, some of whom have, you know, high ideals and want to improve education, but then there are also people in the conversation who really just kind of want to blow up the public education system. And I don't mean to, you know, overstate the case. There, you know, that's, it's not the majority of the people. I think most of the people in the conversation are, have good intentions. Uh, but some of them are pursuing ideology more than pursuing what's good for kids. And, uh, and, you know, the conversation itself 
is an important conversation to have, uh, but it, it, it doesn't need to be one-sided. There have to be folks uh, sticking up for public education or we'll lose it. We're going to take a pause in our discussion and get a look around the sporting world, bring you a few messages too this Sunday morning. We're talking on our program with um, John Kuhn and talking with him about um, some of the information contained in the book Fear and Learning in America, Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education. He has uh, joined us by phone on our program. I'm Bob Solter. When you talk about the kinds of things that you're raising in this book and talking about education, you know, you mentioned a couple of moments ago about this whole situation with testing. And, you know, that could be a whole discussion in and of itself, the whole idea of standardized testing. Why is it that this seems to be such a controversial area, but yet doesn't ever seem to get resolved? I mean, people have been raising these kinds of concerns for years. Well, I, I think it's, it's got to arrive at a certain level of uh, critical mass uh, before anything changes. There are a lot of folks who want there to be a lot of testing in schools. Um, testing, you know, it started in Texas. What we're doing right now across the United States, the No Child Left Behind Act was, was, was taken to Washington, D.C. by George W. Bush, who had been governor here in Texas. And during his time as governor, we had implemented in Texas this, this uh, test Centered regime of holding schools accountable, labeling schools based on test scores, and uh, that so that was kind of invented here, and we've been doing it for a long time here. Um, but what I've seen happen is the testing takes on a life of its own. It becomes a big business, and it has become a big business in Texas. In fact, uh, the most recent contract between the state of Texas and our testing contractor, which is Pearson, which is also the testing contractor in probably most states, uh, the the value of that contract was $468 million for five years' worth of tests. That is enough money to create kind of a self-perpetuating monstrosity of a thing. And what we saw in Texas from the 1980s to today was just continual growth in the cost of testing, in the number of school days devoted to testing, and in the frustration levels of teachers who are losing instructional time for this, this testing regime. And what happened in Texas is is in the process of playing out in every other state now as well. But you're also seeing the pushback uh, come, and uh, New York is a great example of that. There's been a, a great deal of uh, kind of turbulent pushback to the new Common Core testing that's coming to New York. And we saw the same thing here in Texas. In fact, in the 2013 legislative session, for the first time in my lifetime, we saw a reduction in testing requirements and a reduction in kind of the influence of the testing industry over uh, educational accountability policy here in this state. And something I've been thinking ever since I got your book, I'm going to take something from the title of the book. On the same stage, is it possible for fear and learning to actually share the spotlight? I don't believe so. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of idealistic when it comes to education. One of the reasons I went into education is, is because, because I believe in, you know, the power of curiosity. And, and I believe that our students, they, they want to learn. We're born wanting to learn. Nobody has to threaten us when we're one year old to learn to mimic our parents or learn to walk or learn to eat. Uh, we, are, we are born 
with a thirst for knowledge, a thirst to discover new things. And the structure of educational accountability, to me, um, is, is kind of the antithesis of what uh, education is supposed to be. And uh, if, you've, if you've had a classical education and you've studied, you know, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and, and you, can, you can be kind of uh, inspired and filled with these visions of what you think education should be, and I think a lot of our teachers, they, they have this same frustration that I have, that, you know, we, we, have a, we have an idealized view in our minds of what education is supposed to be and how we're supposed to go in that classroom and inspire kids and open their minds to these broad, vast horizons. And yet this testing and accountability system that has been elaborated in our country forces us to take our, our view away from this beautiful vision and focus on these really specific objectives that are going to be on the test. And so when you talk to teachers, they use that phrase, teaching to the test, and, and it comes out of their mouth with, with kind of a, a disgust, you know, because that is not what education is to us. And, and, and being forced from, you know, this, uh, this ideal to this, this kind of reality that's so, so much less than what we expect education to be, it's very jarring, and it, it really takes away a lot of the joy of teaching and learning. So absolutely, no, I don't think fear and learning can share the spotlight. I think we have to choose one or the other. The idea of success for teachers. When a lot of people enter the field of education as teachers, they're extremely enthusiastic, um, bring a lot of that vitality to the classroom, to their classes, to the process. But over the years, for many, and I'm not saying all, but for many, that fascination with the process fades, or fades, and a lot of people just seem to burn out. I mean, what can we do to change that? There is no question that it is vitally important for us to ensure that the teachers teaching our students are capable, that they're you know, motivated and enthusiastic, that they know how to teach, but that they also know their content. You know, if you put somebody in a math class, they need to, they need to know mathematics if they're going to teach it. Those, those are absolutely bedrock fundamental principles that we have to make sure we uphold. So, you know, a lot of the educational accountability movement has been built around this, this fear that we're going to have teachers in our classrooms who aren't doing their job or aren't doing their jobs well. I understand that fear. There are many ways we can ensure quality in our teaching staff other than making the whole structure, you know, depend on these standardized tests. We are overemphasizing the test. We're using it as kind of the be-all and end-all of everything. I'll give you a, a quick example of a great way to uh, help teachers be better, identify teachers who, who don't need to be teaching. It's in Montgomery County, Maryland, and it's called the PAR system, Peer Assistance and Review. Basically, it's an observational protocol where school administrators and trained expert teachers, they go into teachers' classes and they, they observe the teachers in action. Um, they look at student products that students are, are you know, creating in the class. And then they go back to the teacher that they observed, and, and they share, you know, feedback with that teacher. Um, for teachers who are struggling, there are mechanisms for improvement, uh, you know, professional development and, and growth plans. 
Um, and after a certain amount of time, if there's no improvement, then those teachers are moved out of the system. That system works. Everything I've read about it and, and in, you know, things I, that, that you see teachers in that system talking about, it, it does two things. Number one, it, it avoids demonizing the teachers in the whole district and, and making everyone feel like, oh, my gosh, we're not good enough. But at the same time, it doesn't allow you know, subpar teachers to stay in the system. Instead of doing that, what's being proposed by the, the U.S. government, the federal government, and a lot of our state governments is further emphasizing standardized tests by coming up with uh, evaluation protocols that are driven by the test scores. And I think that's a huge mistake. When you, know, you think about those teachers and that enthusiasm that is there, a big discussion that often comes up to is this whole idea of, first of all, of teacher pay, and then the level to which or the way in which teachers, good teachers, should be rewarded. How do we set that up? Well, I think the number one reward that teachers want, more so than pay, more so than benefits, is autonomy and the ability to see their own splash. Uh, I heard a, a former Texas Education Commissioner use that phrase. He said, what teachers want more than anything is to see their own splash. Teachers take pride in their profession. They take pride in their, in their craft, in their art. And they, they want other people to recognize the effort they put in, the amount of time, the amount, you know, they, they, they spend their own money to buy school supplies for kids who don't have them. And all those things, those extra things that teachers do, they don't get enough accolades. They don't get enough praise for doing those things that they do. A lot of us who went into teaching, myself included, we, we did it out of a sense of wanting to serve our communities. You know, my, my dad is a retired uh, firefighter for the city of Dallas, and I always had a ton of admiration for him for being a public servant. And uh, teaching was a good fit for me. It, it allowed me to, to kind of pursue that, that humanitarian ambition of, of wanting to help, you know. Um, and so I think that's the number one thing that we can do to support our teachers is recognize that they're pretty good people, you know. You know, they they're doing they're doing a service to our community. Uh, teachers absolutely need to be paid a, a fair wage. I don't think, uh, and, and of course, I'm not in New York City. I'm sure the the wages of teachers in New York City is much higher than than the rural area where I'm from. Um, but I think when you look at teacher pay and, and you look at the cost of living around the nation, uh, teachers aren't really considered, you know, highly highly paid. Uh, I, I read something this morning that said. Uh, Teachers get an appreciation week. And meanwhile, you know, lawyers get $70,000 extra per year compared to what teachers get. And I understand the difference in training, the difference in education. I understand that, uh, you know, it's hard to get into law school. Um, and I also understand that there are 3 million public school teachers in the United States of America. So uh, you can only invest so much in an education system. There are, you know, there are uh, fiscal limits to what you can spend. Um, but I do think that uh, that the best thing we can do for teachers is uh, repay them with esteem and, and admiration because they do a very difficult job. One of the things that really hurts teachers is when they hear people talk about, oh, they've got such an easy job, you know, they get the summers off and, you know, how hard could it be? But a lot of times the people who say those things, they're, they're not out there quitting their jobs and signing up for teaching jobs either, you know. That's true, and that is a very often heard uh, criticism. I mean, that whole idea about, you know, teachers having, <laughs> you know, several months uh, off, it, it, the implication when people say that is, you know, that the teachers are luxuriating and they're on vacation. And all, but what's the reality? 
Well, I think a lot of people assume that teachers get paid for that time off, and that's really not the case. Like in Texas, I don't know what the school year, school calendar is in New York, but in Texas, teachers work 187 days, and they get paid a daily rate, and they get paid 187 days of their daily rate. Now, we hold back some of their pay and, and give it to them during the summer so they don't starve, you know, during June and July. Um, but, you know, the reality is people, a lot of times they'll say teachers get three months off. Well, the reality is they get June and July off, and they're back, you know, in, in Texas anyway, they're back in, in mid-February. Um, they do get that time off, and that's, that's the way the system's built. And I'm sure a lot of teachers would happily work an extra month or two for an extra month or two's worth of pay. It's really not the teacher's fault that they get summers off. That's just how the system's built. It's the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf along after our 8 o'clock update this Sunday morning. John Kuhn talking with us on our program and talking with about some of the information contained in the book Fear and Learning in America, Bad Data, Good Teachers, and the Attack on Public Education, Teaching for uh, Justice, a Social Justice Series. And uh, he has joined us by phone. Uh, he's actually speaking with us from um, the great state of uh, Texas. Now, when we talk about education and talk about where education is today versus where it's headed. Very often what comes up in discussion is this whole idea of the impact of technology. Technology and the classroom today. Where you are in Texas, what's the reality? Well, I think uh, schools adopt technology as it becomes available and affordable. And I think this has kind of always been the case. If you go back 30 or 40 years, you know, you, you see overhead projectors coming into schools and things like that. So where we are today, you know, schools aren't on the cutting edge of technology just because the cutting edge of technology is very expensive. Uh, but we, what we see in lots and lots of schools is, uh, for example, uh, the, the smart board or the interactive whiteboard, they call it. And I think that's becoming more and more uh, a common sight in our school classrooms. In my school, we, we have one in every classroom, and that's a it's a whiteboard that uh, uh, you can project images from, say, the Internet on it. And I know I've got a Spanish teacher who will project a, a, a memory card game up on the board so that you touch the card and it flips over and you touch a matching card with the English word on it and it flips over and uh, kids can play those sorts of games. So that's one example of an of a educational technology that we're seeing in the classroom. Uh, computers are in uh, all of our classrooms. Our, all of our teachers have a computer in the classroom, and then we have computer labs uh, that students can, can go to. There are a number of schools that have kind of the, the one-to-one uh, computer-to-student uh, programs. Now, we, we haven't been able to do that in my school just because of, of budgetary reasons, uh, but you do see more schools uh, having uh, iPads or, or tablets that they check out to to each of their students, and then the kids will check them back in at the end of the school year. A lot of our textbooks now are going to the electronic textbook that students can, can you know, look at on those tablets. Uh, we have document cameras. Uh, you know, the, the old days we had the overhead projector where you had to take your document and, and copy it onto a clear sheet that you put on the, the overhead, uh, you know, the transparency projector. Well, now with document cameras, you just put a piece of paper there, and it's got a camera, and then it projects that on the wall. So... Those are those are some of the uh, some of the technologies that that we see commonly now nowadays in classrooms. And with that technology, some of the training, and I guess at times even career advancement uh, tools, those are areas where 
teachers have to invest time that they're not necessarily getting paid for. Yeah, uh, generally speaking, teachers during during that summer off, they will go to professional development. Uh, teachers in Texas are required to, to to maintain their certification to get 150 hours of professional development every five years. Um, so teachers during their own time, they do have to to go find trainings. It may be on educational technology. It may be in something that is specific to their subject area. Uh, you know, another speaking of technology, another interesting thing that, that a lot of times we don't think about is our kids bring their own technology with them. Most of our students nowadays have smartphones. They have access to the Internet right there in their pocket. So one of the costs that people uh, don't really realize that exists for schools is uh, bandwidth. Uh, we, we struggle to keep up with <laughs> the amount of bandwidth needed for students to be able to use their devices and not be slowed down by, you know, too many people on the network at the same time. That's an interesting thing that sometimes people might not think of. Um, well, I don't, and I don't think any of us as educators thought of it 10 years ago. You know, it's, it's just a new, it's a new reality, and I'm sure this affects not only schools but probably churches and stores and every, every other type of uh, enterprise. Uh, everybody has the uh, internet device in their pocket and you know wants to get on the internet just whenever so uh, we're constantly investing in Wi-Fi routers and and more bandwidth Hmm. and when you talk about where education is headed what the future is what do you think what do you think we're gonna see let's say in the next five years or so well I'm I'm typically I'm pretty optimistic Uh, there's a lot of turmoil right now there's a lot of fighting back and forth about how much testing how should we use the testing you know, why are we closing down so many public schools and turn around opening up charter schools? There's, there's a lot of suspicion on my side, the public school advocate side, of kind of the, the, the business uh, side of things taking over and that becoming the priority. There's, there's money to be made in education. There always has been. And so a lot of the fight that we see is really a fight over how to uh, spend the limited amount of dollars available for education. But even as this turmoil is unfolding, even as we're going through this tumultuous period, what I believe is – happening in real time is we are negotiating where we're going to wind up and it's it's a game of tug of war uh, but what I believe we will end up with is we will end up with data informed education as opposed to data driven education right now uh, we have we have gone in my opinion too far in the direction of letting the data and the standardized test scores and these complicated formulas drive what we do without a discussion of the limitations of that approach. Well, that discussion is now coming, and that's why there's that's why there's a fight right now because now it's a two-sided conversation. Well, going back to the 80s up until the last couple of years, it was very much a one-sided conversation saying we need more reform, this is what reform looks like, and the politicians would just implement it, and there wasn't a whole lot of debate. So the, the, tumult, the tumultuous environment we're seeing right now is really, in my opinion, a very healthy thing because you have the business community pushing reforms and improvements and efficiencies, but then you have the educational community finally speaking up, and not only teachers but also students and parents who are getting very vocal saying, this is what we want our schools to be. So it's not all about efficiency. It's also about, you know, what are the community's expectations and and, and what are teachers saying they need to be able to do their job effectively. I think it's a healthy debate. I want to thank you very much for your time. Your uh, enthusiasm in this area certainly comes through, John. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Rick Wolf and the Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. I'm Bob Solter, and, you know, we shift into a discussion uh, that I've been looking forward to for some time because I'm intrigued by the person that I'm sitting across the table from. Pavlina Osta is uh, joining us on our program. I guess 
let me not talk about you in the third person because you're an arm's distance away away from me. It sounds silly for me to talk about you in the third person. First of all, welcome to our program. Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate you having me. Beginning this discussion, I'm trying to think of the right way to introduce you. Um, I guess the best way is you're an entertainment journalist. Yes. Okay. Um, in a way, you're kind of a, I guess, almost like a social uh, yeah. reviewer or at times uh, critic. You point to and review trends. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing a lot of things where you're being asked your opinion on uh, things involving millennials as well. But it seems like you also have a lot of fun with what you do. Oh, my gosh. I love everything I do. I do I do a lot of stuff, mostly, you know, obviously pertaining to radio, but it's so much fun. Now, we were talking about this before we started this part of the program. What motivates you? What makes you want to do a lot of stuff? Right. Okay, so I have always been a busybody, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I've always had to be moving. Mm-hmm. If I'm not moving, I get bored. Like, I get bored really easily, <laughs> so I always have to be doing something different. Um, but I started in radio when I was 11. So um, I was playing steel drums on the beaches of Daytona Beach, Florida, and I was getting interviews by like local radio stations. And one of the radio station managers was like, you know, you're in the station a lot. I can see potential. Like, you should start your own show. And I was 11 and I had a really high squeaky voice. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, so this sounds interesting. And um, I started my 15 minute show um, when I was 11. And then I didn't know how to fill up that 15 minute um show Mm -hmm. so kevin jonas actually came to daytona beach which never happens no one comes to daytona beach unless you're a nascar driver and um i snuck in long story got an interview with him um which was completely on the fly and then i started doing celebrity interviews so it was just like ever since like 11 you know i was just kind of like moving and and stuff and um yeah and now i'm i'm 19 and um i love talking about millennials because i find i find them fascinating like i'm actually more of a Generation Z, which is right, right after Millennials. and um, But I just find the whole, um, I guess, culture of it and everything just fascinating because, you know, we grew up on our cell phones and no one has ever seen a generation like this um, and the way they think and the way they um, they they want to do stuff. But, but yeah, I've always I've always liked to be busy. And um, I don't know, my, I've, my parents always, like, uh, ingrained in us to really, like, be go-getters and just, like... Um, to have a lot of goals. We always had to set goals and everything. So I guess that's always been um, something I've wanted to um, to keep doing in, in my life and everything. Okay. I got to ask the question because, first of all, this interests me. It's a large part of uh, my life, my existence, and has been for many years. Why radio? I know. Everyone says that because they're like, why not, you know, like something else? Like, I obviously want to go into TV as well. But radio, I feel like you just have this connection with someone, you know, you turn it on in the car and like you are just suddenly talking to someone and it's just kind of like, you know what I mean? Um, and I've just always had this fascination with, um, like we're talking, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I just find this so cool. And like, you don't even have to see us. You can just like, you can just listen to us. And it's just like a little conversation. I feel like you just get to get, you, you get to like connect with people so well. Um, and I've just always like, ever since, you know, being 11, like getting ra- like interviews in the radio studio, I just thought it was just weirdly fun. It was just like, this is, this is really fun. So I got, um, as my boss always says, um, he was bit by the radio bug early. And I think I was too. See, that's part of the magic of, of radio. And I've, I've taught for a long time, Mm -hmm. um, in, um, in college or colleges and also in broadcasting school. 
So I've been part of um, a faculty or faculties that have helped to bring generations of broadcasters along. Okay? Of course. Part of the trick with radio and really with communication is just to think of it as if you're talking to one person. Yeah. That's that's the whole magic of what radio is all about, because if you can connect with the person who you're listening to on the air and in turn that person connects with you, then that's exactly what this is all about. Exactly. Yeah. Or even if like we're connecting and like someone else can like listen in and you know what I mean? They connect with it. So it's just like. It's just, it's magical. I love it. <laughs> Rick Wolf Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock update. Ed Randall's Talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update this Sunday morning on the fan. Avlina Asta is uh, joining us on our program. Part of the reason for our, our discussion today yeah. is, you know, you have this perspective. Um, and as you said, you like talking about millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this interesting study that had come out that talked about this idea of millennials, the whole idea of the first date versus mm-hmm. what some people refer to as the leap into bed. Okay? Yeah. Um, what surprised you, if anything, by the results of that? Yeah. So what I've noticed with like the millennials is there's definitely two sides of them. There's, you know, like there's the the, the full-on millennial, like, they like to live in their parents' basement, and they, um, <laughs> you know, like the stereotypical millennial. And then there's, like, the not-so-stereotypical millennial that, like, is actually kind of a go-getter, you know? <laughs> but They like to live in their parents' basement. <laughs> yeah, well, you, know, you know, they're on Tinder all day, right. and they're just, like, they're, they're you know, smooching off the parents. Um, which is fine. You know, you do you. Whatever floats your boat. Um, but I found this so surprising i was just like why would anyone want to do this especially when you know we are in the field of like communication like this is like this is what we do so i was just like what the heck (laughs) um but basically the study was saying that you know instead like on the first date instead of going out to dinner or like forming a friendship or something like that they're just going straight to the bedroom which i thought was like what (laughs) um Mm -hmm. it just did not make sense to me because I guess that's like their way of finding a connection with the person. And I was like, well, what about like talking to them and making sure that you, they don't have any weird habits or something or maybe, you know, it's just like that just didn't the whole study surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, you know, you, you stop and think about there used to be a phrase. Maybe I'm showing my age by saying this, but I'll say it anyway. It used to be a phrase used of. You have to get to know the person. Yeah, that's what I always thought. You know, like I kind of want to have a friendship first and then, you know, start dating them and then move forward from there. But um, or not or not. Yeah. Yeah, Or or who knows what people are doing now. Like Tinder, I think, completely changed that. Like Mm -hmm. Tinder was basically what the hookup app. Um, So people are now like swiping left or right. I don't I don't know which way is which, but whatever. Um, And then, you know, you can just connect with this person and see if you are compatible, I guess. It's a different world. It definitely uh, to, is. To Technology makes it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got this situation that um, at times is a frightening thought when you're behind the wheel. Right. Of this study of millennials and driving habits. Um, there's some frightening things. It was, it was a AAA study. Yeah. 
that uh, this came up with. Uh, what surprised you in that? Yeah, so I think with uh, with this study, it was basically saying that millennials aren't driving as much, which I think is a good thing, just because like even Snapchat warns us, you know, to not snap and drive, mm-hmm. um, because I don't know. I when I was in Florida, I drove a lot just because driving like relaxed me. I got to like listen to my music. I was in my little yellow VW Bug. It was awesome. And um, convertible. Yes, it was. Oh, there you go. Convertible. Yeah, you're in Florida. There you go. All right. (laughs) Go on the beach. Have like the convertible down. You gotta have it there. It was the best. Her name was Betsy. She was great. What a what a stud. Um, (laughs) And um, I still have her. My parents kept keep you know keep her in the garage just because best car ever. And but anyway, the study. um, It was fascinating because it was saying that a lot of millennials aren't driving anymore, and I I kind of disagree with that. Because I think it depends on where you are, first of all. Like in the city, I would never drive. I would, I would, I can't even ride a bike in the city. Like my goodness, <laughs> I would kill myself. Um, but I, I think if anything, this is for the better mm-hmm. because millennials have the attention span, uh, like the attention span of like a squirrel. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, um, someone just texted me. I have to like check it. And it's like, no, you don't. You're driving. Or like, oh, I have to change this song. I can't stand. You know what I mean? Like they're messing with the radio mm-hmm. or they're on Snapchat because they want. I don't know what it is, but especially from where I'm from, I would look I would look on my Snapchat story and people like to Snapchat video like while they're driving and like record the song. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, that's not. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can have like your passenger like Shazam it or something. But like right. you don't need to be snapping while you're driving. I don't know. I have a lot of friends that do that. And I just never understood what they were doing. Um, But I think, like I said, for this study, I think it's. If this is true, you know, millennials not driving as much, I think it's for the better because the planet won. And then also um, they'll have like less accidents because they get like so distracted. This distraction is is huge. I mean, yeah. you know, we've heard for years this whole thing about people uh, texting and dri- uh, driving. And, yeah. and, and it's, it's not just millennials. It's right. just in some cases, in some places, I hate to do a blanket thing, but it's everybody is. Oh, of course. Okay, it, it's you. You see people's heads down. I mean, people do all kinds of things. Uh, I I've seen people literally, you know, in, in morning rush hour in some cases, and people are a lot older than millennials who are yeah. shaving. There, oh, people gosh. are changing a shirt to <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, reading books. I mean, it, oh. it's. Doing it's, their makeup. It, yeah, doing the makeup. It, it's crazy the things that people will do yeah. uh, behind the wheel. But one of the things with millennials that I read about in this survey result was this idea that slowing down, mm-hmm. like in school zones. Oh, yeah. Like, that's not a thing. No. It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I know. There's not a five-year-old crossing the road with their parent or something. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like they just... They think that they're in a rush. And like my parents, you know, they lectured me so much about like, you do not drive fast. You do not do this. You do not do this. And um, just one of the things, like one of the common sense mm-hmm. things was you just drive slower in school areas. And I feel like they are, you know, millennials or whoever. I, I know a lot of um, not millennials, like adults and everything mm-hmm. that are, you know, they just kind of speed their way through. Oh, there's no, I don't see anyone. It's fine. Like, there's not a cop. There's no, I don't see any kids. Like, the kids are still in school or whatever. I'll just go. And it's just kind of like, you can't really do that. Yeah, that's the big thing is a lot of people, the, their focus is not so much in those zones. It's not so much on yeah. the kids. It's whether or not there's a cop yep. watching. <laughs> yep. Okay. Because if there's the no, not, not a cop, they're going to just book on through. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the whole thing. Um, and that's where it gets really dangerous. And then you get this other thing, too, of a lot of people... I see this all the time where people 
I refer to it as grazing as right. opposed to coming to a stop. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's you a know. huge difference. <laughs> there is a big difference yeah. there, especially if you got somebody who's coming from the other direction. Exactly. You know, uh, and they just, they're just, again, it's just about them. Yeah. They're the priority yeah. and they're going to go. Exactly. And I remember, um, so when I drove a lot in Florida, there was this Panera that we'd always go to to, to study at and everything. And um, there was this one stop that like, you couldn't really see the person. Like if there was a person coming from the other side mm. that did have the right of way, mm-hmm. you wouldn't really see them coming because of the trees and everything. And um, I just remember like people that wouldn't come to a complete stop. I would always be so hesitant of like keep going just because I always thought someone wouldn't stop and like make sure. Um, because there's been a couple of times where it's like that person just kind of grazed the stop and like mm-hmm. almost hit me or like mm-hmm. almost hit one of my friends. And it's just kind of like, oh, my gosh, like just stop and like, look, I'm coming this way. So. I think it's important because a lot of people don't do that. They're like, oh, it's okay. Like, I'm stopping. Not really. I'm just going to... Oh, rolling stop. That's exactly what it is. is. I was like, what is that called? Rolling stop. And, you know, it's funny because as you were saying that, and I'm thinking, and also making the connection with Florida. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, what used to be said, especially in Florida, was with the number of people who are retired. Well, it's all those old people. Yep. Okay. And, (laughs) you know, there's the thing where, you know, the the older person is out driving and they're in the extreme right-hand lane, and all of a sudden they go to the extreme left-hand lane yeah. and make that left turn, or, you know, they come to the stop sign and they just... Their foot keep, doesn't hit all the way keep down. Going. Right. <laughs> just going to keep going. Yeah, you know, but this is a much younger generation yeah. that um, is doing these things which are really, really dangerous when yeah. you get right down to it. I know. And I think I think it's kind of like all comes down to just like them being impatient. Like I'm a very impatient person with certain things, but with other things, I'm like extremely patient. So, you know what I mean? But I think it's just like one of those things. It's like I just want my Starbucks. Like I just want I just want to go. And I feel like or they're always in a rush because, you know, running late or something. So I feel like it's a lot of like impatience and just not um, caring about what could happen if someone else is on the other side. And also not thinking that, you know, they're powering cases of two, some cases of 3,000, some cases right. much more than that weight vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That can do some serious damage when you get right down to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, You know, if I see a big pickup truck come, coming towards my little, like, my little <laughs> car, I get a little freaked out just because I'm like, you're going to crush me. <laughs> but it's, I think they definitely need to be more aware. And um, I don't know, I think, you know, either parents or like their driving instructors or something should really like drill it in that. These kind of rules, like the rolling stop and the um, the school zones and everything, mm-hmm. should just really be um, more in, like it should just be emphasized more. I think. What do you want to do ultimately with your career? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's get into this. Um, so I have, you know, my show, of course, which mm-hmm. is nationally syndicated through iHeartRadio and all the other stations, and. Um, so I want to syndicate that more and, you know, have I kind of want to have more time for my show. Like I ever since I started school and then I, I work full time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like full full time work, full time school. And then I, you know, write for Huffington Post and all these other sites. Um, I have not had as much time to focus on my show as much as I would like. I've kind of had to put it on the back burner a little bit. And so I want to focus more on my show, I, you know, grow with that. Um, and then I also want to move into TV. So um I kind of want to become like a contributor or something and then get like a show. And then I ultimately want to have 
a whole media like network. So I kind of want to pull an Oprah <laughs> with with it. So um, I would love to have, you know, my show and then a bunch of other shows. And then um, I also love fashion. So I would want to like move into fashion and have like a fashion line and which I'm already trying to start. Like I'm trying to start like a fashion line. I'm, wanting, I'm getting like the, the beginning business plan around and everything. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like the ultimate goal is um, is the media network and the show, the TV shows and everything. And then maybe go into fashion. How did you get into writing? Writing has kind of kind of come to me. Um, I oh my gosh, how did I start with Huffington? I th- I, I met Ariana Huffington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what was that like? That was exciting. She was great. She's a lot of fun. I've interviewed her since, and um, it was great. Uh, she you know it, it was just kind of like you should start writing for for Huffington. And I was like, okay, this is exciting. Um, Wait a minute. She she just said to you, you start just, just start writing for like just become a contributor, and I was like, solid. Okay. Okay. <laughs> like, right. See, I feel like. When you're like in the field that you're supposed to be in, or like even if because I feel like I if I don't like do new stuff all the time, I get like kind of freaked out. So, but I feel like things will just kind of come to you. You know what I mean? Like things will just kind of like fall into your lap, which thankfully has been my case for a lot of it. Um, and yeah, so I just started writing. It's I think it's been three years now, um, and I just kind of write an, an article whenever I feel like writing an article. It's just kind of like oh, like this happened or. Um, I, I remember this or like, this was a, an exciting event or I want to promote this. So, um, it's fun to just be able to, to write up a quick article and, and then they post it. Oh, so you don't, you're, you're I'm not even like, yeah, I'm not even like staff kind of thing. It's just kind of like whenever I have, whenever I want to, uh, contribute, I can, um, you know, they'll post it. So you're literally a contributor and you're not, you're not under that whole thing of yeah. a lot of people would be freaked out about of deadlines exactly okay. i don't even have that which is amazing especially because of my full-time job and full-time school like mm-hmm. whoa <laughs> that would be super intense but i'm so glad that i don't have to to do that she was just like whenever you got time and i was like that's almost never but okay like let's do this <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like a very interesting uh future that you, you. Uh, have i certainly wish you the best uh, with that and i want to thank you for taking some time and talking with us now Final question I have for you yeah. relates to something that I think has been obvious to everybody listening throughout this discussion. But I'll ask the question anyway. How important to your life and to the work that you do is your sense of humor? Oh, um, I don't know. I'm I've always been a very like optimistic and like very like, you know, happy person, I guess. So my sense of humor, um, I don't know, it just kinda like comes to me. It's just kind of like, okay, like I think, I don't know. I like to think that I'm funny sometimes. You Does know? that keep you in perspective? It, like, in perspective to just... Like, keep you in, keep everything in perspective for you. Yeah, yeah, it does. I like to just joke about everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think everything is kind of funny. You know what I mean? Like I agree with you. Everything in the world is just really funny. Like, if you think about it, it's just like, okay, that was funny. Like, it's just, I just think everything is hilarious. <laughs> and that's a great way of keeping things in perspective, I yes, think. I, right? Yes, I completely and I wish, agree. The other thing is, I wish... <laughs> More people kind of saw it that people way. People need to lighten up. All right. like, <laughs> yeah, it's like everybody who's walking around there, like, oh, so home drum. It's like, oh, oh. Yeah. Come on, lighten up a little bit. Smile. Know. You yeah. Know? Even if you're like, if you have like a routine and, you know, because like, I don't like routine personally. Like, I need to like switch it up a little bit all the time. But um, even if I am in a routine or like, I don't know, it just makes so much, like, everything is just more fun when you either like joke about something or if you're just like always laughing. Like, I just, I just like laughing. <laughs> so. Uh, my friends used to call me Flutter because I sound like a but, like a fairy when I laugh, apparently. And I'm like, thanks, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm laughing. <laughs> That's not a bad name at all. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, thank you very much, Flutter. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Rick Wolf's along with the Sports Edge following our top of the hour update. Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. You know where. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.